Hi, and welcome back into the We Shall Not Sleep podcast. Thank you for taking the time to check us out once again. This week, I had the privilege of speaking with one of my favorite people on the planet, Dr. Mark Frisius. He is a professor of church history and theology at Olivet Nazarene University. His book, which is pretty lengthy titled, and I quote, Tertullian's use of the pastoral epistles, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, and Jude, was published by Peter Lang Press in 2010. Before his tenure at Olivet, he was an adjunct professor at Marymount University and at the Catholic University of America. He is a member of the Society of Biblical Literature and the North American Patristic Society. Now, more importantly for this podcast's sake, he was my favorite professor at college, and I considered him to be a great friend. Uh, you are in for a treat this week, and we discuss matters of church history, theology, and how we can connect them to the church today. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Mark Frisius. Well, th- this is a treat for me because uh, at, at this point, people have already have heard about you in my life who I, who I talk to incessantly. You are absolutely my favorite professor, and I have I have no, I have no shame in admitting that I had favorites at school. Just like, just like professors, I know you had favorite students. I don't, I probably wasn't one of them, but uh, the the one of the one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on this podcast is because you happen to to teach a subject that is so imperative, I think, for the church. And unfortunately, unless you go to university. Or you go, or you do like some pointed research yourself. You're not really going to find a lot of the information uh, freely out there being taught in Sunday school or even mentioned in some sermons because it's it's so uh, it's so niche. And and for me, like that fourth century of Christianity uh, that that had to deal with Constantine and the legalization and, and 315 and all the way up through the first Council of Nicaea, like that is like my, my favorite time period. Surprise, surprise, that's not a lot of people. <laughs> out there. So um, I, I brought you in to help maybe guide us a little bit about the importance of church history and what are some things we can learn from it. But I, I guess for those who don't know you, if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit of how you came to know Christ and, and the church, or were, were you uh, born born in, in the church at all? Like, what is that journey like for you? Sure. So, um, yeah, so I grew up in a, in a church out in, near Portland, Oregon. And so my parents were um, always um, in church. Uh, so I think we we probably were there more than the pastor most most of the time. Um, so so I can remember you know kind of making a faith commitment when I was maybe five or six. Um, and you know we kind of did the you know we went to children's church and and did all of that sort of thing. And it really wasn't probably until high school I imagine that. Um, you know, I kind of started to take my faith a little bit more seriously, um, but wasn't really kind of ready, I guess, maybe to kind of commit fully um, to everything. Um, and so it probably wasn't really until college that I really um, sort of surrendered. Um, so when I was started college, I was a chemical engineering major um, at the University of Washington. Uh, and I was pulled paper science major, so I made my own paper. Yeah, but I hated chemistry, and that was a pretty sure sign I'm in the wrong major. 
And I had known for a while that I'd been called to the ministry, but for a long time I thought that ministry had to had to be a pastor, and I am I am not equipped to be a pastor. That's just not who I am. Um, and it wasn't until I was in in college at George Fox um, as a biblical studies major uh, that I really kind of discovered um, a couple things. Um, the first was that you know teaching um, is uh, an incredible opportunity and an incredible ministry. Um, as I kind of think about, you know, the responsibility of helping to shape um, the next generation uh, and imparting knowledge. Uh, and when I think of knowledge, I, I don't just think, you know, kind of facts, but I think of what do we, how do we interpret and understand things? How do we contextualize things? Mm-hmm. And how do we put them to use? Um, so, um, so that was one thing that I started to see. And the second thing that I started to see is that was when I first met church history. Um, and I, I probably remember two things. Um, one, um, so for those who are listening who never met me, um, my area specialty is early Christianity. Um, and so my first class on early Christianity, I hated it. Um, <laughs> I thought it was the dullest, <laughs> driest subject on the planet. I hated going to that class. Um, there was just nothing about it that sparked my interest. Um, and, um, and then I went to, a, I had to take two classes in it. So the second class was on kind of the Reformation, everything after it. And um, the, the man who taught that, uh, Dr. Irv Brenlinger, um, it was um, incredible um, and really awakened in me a distinct interest and passion for church history. Um, his main area of specialty was um, British uh, church history time, around the time of William uh, Wilberforce. Uh, so okay. with the um, um, with the movement away from slavery in England. Um, so sure. I wasn't interested at all in his time period. Um, and that was what really kind of sparked me to go back and look at some of the early stuff and discover just so much vibrancy and power um, and incredible people who lived then uh, who really helped to shape the way in which the church uh, developed and thought. And I started thinking, well, how does that kind of impact, you know, this was back in the late 90s, <laughs> but um, how, does, how does that impact the, the church? Um, and then the second thing that hit me was, why hadn't I ever heard any of this before? Sure. Um, yeah. So I'd grown up in the church, and I, <laughs> the other thing I distinctly remember, um, I went home for um, spring break, and one of the assignments was we had to interview one of our pastors. Now, this was for another class that I was taking, um, and I, I sat down with the pastor and talked with him about kind of our church's polity for a bit. Um, and then on the way out, he was asking how, how classes were going, and I said, they're going really well. And, and I, I learned about this John Wesley guy, um, oh, yeah. the founder of Methodism and the Church of the Nazarene. And, and I started just talking about just how fascinating this Wesley guy is and how much I was really kind of in sync with his ideas and I heard the pastor me he said you know we're Wesleyan right <laughs> and I said no I actually didn't um, I had no idea I'd never heard of him I had no idea that, that was kind of the, the um, denominational position of my church um, and that kind of you know still kind of you know connects with me to say um, and Michael I know you kind of want to kind of at some point kind of talk about you know how do we kind of church history in the modern church and what does it kind of look like? And, and that was really kind of got me thinking about that was to say, 
well, I haven't heard about this. And I spent like every waking minute on a Sunday and on a Wednesday in this place. And, and it took going to college and, and taking ministry classes to actually hear about this. And, you know, is anybody, you know, kind of ever going to learn about this? It, it, that's, that's such a fascinating uh, a way of putting it because it, for me, I, I have the same, very, very much the same um, a story. Uh, not, it wasn't until I got to school where I, I, where I took just a Christian theology, just the very intro, which sadly I didn't have you for. Uh, but I, I was awakened to this, this idea that there was just bigger worlds behind Christianity. And, and I had grown up in the church and I have a uncle who was a Lutheran minister. So I've been, been a part of some of the more liturgical uh, services growing up. And the why was always explained to me in that tradition. But as far as, you know, Wesleyan Arminianism, and this this guy named John Wesley, like you said, but what about you know how we even got our New Testament? So when I got to History of Christianity one with you, and you started mentioning these people like Ambrose, Theodosius, Constantine, who I'm who I've heard of before, but I don't know what context, it just opened my my world to something greater. And and having our paths, you know, kind of converge at Olivet, one of the, the questions I had is that you, you've had a, you had a wide history of, of where you went to school. You didn't just stay in a Wesleyan university. I mean, you traveled around, uh, you know, you went to George Fox, then you went to Asbury, then you made your way to Catholic University of America. That's, it seems to me like that's a, it's a diverse background. So how, how did you, how did you trace your way from your undergrad to going and getting your master's of divinity and then finally onto your, your doctoral work? Yeah. So in undergrad, I, I was looking at, when I was graduating, I was looking at a couple of different things. Um, so I was, I was thinking of going to teach English in China, um, and I ended up not working out. And then at the very last minute, I said, "Well, I guess I probably ought to go to seminary." And and um, the professor who really kind of encouraged me in my, in my academic development had gone to Asbury and had spoken very highly of it. And I thought, "Well, good enough for him. <laughs> good enough for me." And and so there, I did did my master's in divinity. So George Fox is a Quaker school. Um, so George Fox is the founder of Quakerism, but Quakerism today, the, the Friends Church is another term for it, um, is fairly theologically Wesleyan. So I, you know, kind of had some adherence to Wesleyanism there, and Asbury is a part of the Methodist tradition. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not officially a part of the United Methodist Church, but a lot of United Methodist pastors go there. Um, so, um, and, and there really, I had, I had a couple of really good professors um, who, um, who are specialists in Reformation era? There, there. I discovered there weren't a lot of Protestants overall um, who did much work in ancient Christianity, um, and beyond that, not many Wesleyans. Um, a lot of Lutherans uh, will do that, um, and, and part of this Lutheran tradition is more tied into kind of the past, um, and um, Luther never saw the Reformation as a break from tradition, rather as a break from the Roman Catholic understanding of tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Episcopalians believe the same way, Anglicans, um, but not a lot of Wesleyans kind of work in that area. Now, so when it kind of came time to um, go on to doing second masters, um, there, there weren't really many Protestant schools that, you know, were 
<laughs> doing anything uh, in early Christianity, and particularly from a position of um, those who um, appreciate the tradition. Mm -hmm. um, the way that I, I see it oftentimes in kind of scholarly circles is that um, many will approach it from more of an academic perspective and don't necessarily see it as formative to faith. Um, and so I wanted to go to a school that would have a good academic tradition, but also see it as how does this shape and form us? Um, instead of just what do they say? Why do they say it? What are they arguing against? I want to say how does it kind of impact today? Um, and so that's a that's a pretty significant piece of, kind of the Roman Catholic tradition. Um, and so um, Catholic University of America. Um, had a couple of really top-notch scholars um, who uh, were leaders in really Christian thought. Uh, and so that was the place that ended up being really good for me. Yeah. And, and then you eventually would, would make your way to Olivet where I would, I would run into you. And, and it, was, it was funny because I actually started taking the classes with you a year ahead of time. I heard great things about you, and I was following – uh, one of my uh, upperclassmen friends through their theological like track. And I realized that I didn't have to be a junior to take uh, history of Christianity. Uh, there wasn't a prerequisite other than, you know, Theo 101. So that yeah. that's, yeah. So that, that's why I got into it. Like, so um, now one of the things that immediately struck me was the fact that you're, you use such a, a way of storytelling. I will say I'm not going to name who, but the way you taught history of Christianity one with injecting a lot of humor and uh, relatability to these characters of history was what kept me awake and kept me interested. Can't say that for all of my classes uh, with church history, but when it when it comes to this area, you mentioned this formative uh, training. It's not just it's not just something that is strictly academic. What was it? to you like when you when you graduated you had you have your your doctorate you know this is what you want to do as, as far as like selling uh, a history of christianity or if you were to propose or be in, in, in head of a department like what what is the selling point for for church history that that adds to the formative nature uh, of it, they go it, the the wild card, I guess, if you will, that transcends the academic. Like, why do why do you want kids to study this who have, who are a part of the church? Yeah, I, I think one of the weaknesses of our kind of current culture, um, it's often called the tyranny of the immediacy. That everything is a short soundbite. Um, everything has to be decided in the here and the now. Um, and there's not always a lot of time for reflection or contextualization. Um, hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that history broadly uh, kind of defined. And then within a Christian environment, church history helps us to get past a little bit or to at least um, navigate a little bit better. Um, that it, it it tells us a couple of things. One, um, I'm probably not the first person who's thought this um, and then asks the question, why did they think something similar? 
what were the reactions to it? Um, what are the battles that have been fought? Um, like I, part of me thinks, you know, the, the early church was was a wild place. Um, mm-hmm. There, there were people everywhere doing all kinds of stuff. Um, but there were certain things that um, they were able to hone in on and say, this is what is distinctive to our communities. Um, and the creeds are a good example of that. This is what is distinctive to our thoughts. Sure. Um, and then I think that the same thing happened with the practice of the church. Uh, one of the things that uh, many early scholars of early history will tell us, of early church history will tell us, is that the early church was at least a, a fairly multicultural place. Um, so one of the one of the often misnomers of the Roman Empire is like it was this kind of monolithic whole kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, where everybody's kind of thinking the same thing because Caesar told you to. <laughs> um, well, it, you know, it's fun for like a, a Ridley Scott movie or something, <laughs> but it's not reality at all. Um, that Rome was kind of a hodgepodge, really, of dozens and dozens of cultures. That, yeah, you all were Roman together, but you also maintain lots of different aspects of your identity. And there wasn't a lot of kind of cross pollination that went on oftentimes. Uh, and Christianity becomes one of the um, many, or one of the few, I, I think, that, that kind of went out into other people groups uh, within the Roman Empire, even outside of the Roman Empire into the Persian Empire, um, and started evangelizing. Um, and it was very rare in that day for anybody to, you know, kind of switch religions. You know, if you've got polytheism, Going on, the last thing is he was the other gods angry because he stole their worshippers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> it does kind of make Christianity somewhat unique in that era, just in terms of how they practice. But you started to have this this environment that, that started to happen where people from all the different cultures in a city and all the different walks of life in the Roman Empire, rich, poor, you know, people from different tribal groups were all kind of coming together. You know, and we see a lot of the struggle when we read in the early church, like how do we you know, kind, of, kind of get that together? Um, how do we kind of get rid of, you know, your status as a slave or you're a rich guy or you're the poor or, you know, you're, <clears throat> you're a native North African or you're an, you're an Italian. Like how do, we, how do we kind of forge a church out of all of that? Um, they did a lot of the hard work to say, you know, how can we exist together? Um, in this without kind of our differences kind of ripping us apart. Um, what, a, what a novel question to ask, especially uh, with, with today. I, I, you're, you're touching on something that, that I have felt ever since I started learning about this. was seeing a lot of parallels between the fourth century specifically. I know you're not referring just to the fourth century, but the area of interest that, that caught my eye the most and, and today with a lot of like rulers, uh, politicization of Christianity, the, the polls in different directions as far as like, what, what do we deem as theologically correct of what is, what is heresy? And I'm continuing to see that, and we'll touch on that a little bit later. But what you are just describing, that kind of this multiculturalism that uh, is funny is I, I just got done interviewing uh, one of my first guests, and he, he grew up at Times Square Church. And I would say he he attended there for two years, and there were 103 nationalities represented in that congregation at one point in time in the early 2000s. And that you know that is something that you know he said it was probably the closest thing to heaven he's ever experienced. But you you bring up 
a great point that Christianity was, was trying to transcend that and one of the only ones successfully doing it. And I'm just wondering, do you, do you see a parallel today uh, in that aspect and the same charge that we have as Americans um, also as Christians first? Yeah, I, I think in the, you know, prior to Constantine, um, you see a lot more movements to say, um, how do we how do we live in an egalitarian environment? How do we create one of those in our church community? Um, and and their thought wasn't necessarily that that the government is the one that does it for us. Um, I mean, when you're an illegal religion, you probably don't want to count on the government to do much for you. <laughs> right. um, so, um, so they they had to kind of, you know, navigate some of that and say, all right. And you can even see it in the in the New Testament writings. Like I, I predict, I think of the Book of James, where James just kind of reads them out for giving preferential treatment to the rich, um, and you know, he does it multiple times throughout his somewhat sporadic letter. Um, and you can see kind of developing later on where um, you have all kinds of divides that they're trying to heal. Um, so I think of a letter that we know as First Clement, uh, written by Clement of Rome, probably uh, sometime around the turn of the, the second century, so late 90s, early 100s. Um, and there's this group in Corinth, um, uh, well, two groups, and one group is made of young, young folks that want to kind of jump into leadership, and there's the old ones who don't want to let them. Uh, right. And, and there's all kinds of disputes about how do we use the, the funding that we have, and how do we use our spiritual gifts, and all those things. And you can see them trying to kind of figure that way forward. Um, so some of the ways they did that was um, really kind of through a radical sense of caring for the poor. Um, now, there was always disagreement about how do we kind of best do that. Um, sure. but, but you don't find somebody coming and saying, you know, that, that care for the poor is like some radical idea um, and something yeah. like that. Um, and, and for the most part, they, they viewed it as, and, and here's, I think, another, another piece that is difficult for folks in kind of the current world to kind of wrap their minds around. They, they viewed it as both the individual responsibility and corporate responsibility. Um, and they oftentimes saw it as a, as a, not as a microcosm, but as existing on a local level. Um, and so by that, what I mean is that they, they, they could have seen, you know, the uh, epidemic of slavery in the Roman world and, and been really kind of disheartened, or the epidemic of poverty, and said, there's just poverty everywhere, it's in every city, there's hundreds of thousands of the poor, and that's not super overwhelming, right? Mm -hmm. But what the, the tact they took was to say, well, there's also a poor person that I walk by on the way to work. There's something I can do for that guy yeah. or for that yeah. guy. And so they, they took it, and you, you can oftentimes find uh, in their, their sermons the, the encouragement. And here, uh, John Chrysostom is a pretty good example, a, a late 4th century uh, bishop of Constantinople, um, who basically talks about and says, look, the care for the poor is not just the church. It's you. Um, and so, like, I oftentimes think, like, what, what they had going on and what John is responding to uh, was almost like the, I gave it the office mentality. 
which I don't even know if that's a phrase anymore. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I gave it to some charitable thing at the office, so I'm not gonna, I don't have to take a personal stake in it. Sure. That uh, makes and complete they, sense. And they saw it and said, you know, we've all got a personal stake. Um, that, you know, for the most part, most people in the early church are fairly poor themselves. And part of what they would say is, you know, you can help that one person. You know, you don't need the second sandwich. Maybe you could give, you know, half of Jimmy John's to somebody there um, and you'll be okay. And they did the same thing with adoption. Adoption they saw as kind of a um, personalized response um, and as an individual responsibility in the community. And partly thought, well, um, it's one more amount. Yeah. <laughs> that will eventually kind of grow up and leave the house. <laughs> right. So, um, and then they also saw other things as kind of a communal responsibility. So, um, the care for the widow is usually seen as a communal responsibility. Um, but they they started to set up systems to say, all right, how do how do we make sure that we don't kind of let people or allow people to kind of escape our notice? Hmm. You know, well, one of the very first. That, that, I'll just say real quick, that is so convicting for today, especially in our country. So I don't mean to interrupt you and continue. It just that that hits that hits a lot different knowing how knowing their position, their lack of status, lack of resources, and but their commitment is is astonishing. And and we find them talking about that in, in their apologies. So when they when they kind of or their defenses of the faith, yeah, when they would write to emperors who were persecuting them, that's the principle what they talk about. And they're like this is what we do. It's not like we're off having wild parties and drinking orgies. We don't care for it. We we take abandoned widows uh, who have no choice for the most part except to go to prostitution to feed themselves, and we take care of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we look in kind of the after Constantine era, um, you have an attempt to kind of restore what's vaguely called Roman paganism. Um, to the empire. And um, this is done by um, Emperor Julian. Um, history oftentimes remembers him as Julian the Apostate. Um, and he tries to kind of restore paganism to kind of yes. an ascendant place in the empire. And you can read his, his works. Um, and he, he talks about, he calls the Christians the Galileans. And, and he wants basically, he thinks the whole reason that Christianity was so successful is because they care for the poor. Um, and he's, he basically goes after the the um, Roman priests and says, we need to do the same thing. (laughs) We lost this somewhere. Um, And part of what I think the early church kind of hit on was um, there's certainly a time for kind of talking about how do we do it and what's the best approach and um, that sort of thing. But there also has to be the time where we say, we also have to be an actor and that it has to, it has to start with me um, that it can't be, well, the government needs better policies or the church needs to establish another food bank. Um, it's me. I've got to do this. Um, and again, it's oftentimes very difficult because we see kind of the enormity of the, the problem because we, we're in such a social media-driven world um, and where you've got kind of everybody with a smartphone is you know showing pictures and that sort of thing. And so I think it oftentimes makes that kind of you know overwhelming. And, and yeah, I, I was thinking that when you, when you start talking about like the post Constantine era, like having 
like that particular era is it's quite is so fascinating and I, I know i had other other questions for you but i but since we're we're right there um can you can you just briefly for those who don't know who constantine is i i know that you know history is is still divided and i know that that's that's something we couldn't even come to a, a conclusion of whether or not you know like constantine was actually orthodox considered orthodox or if he was actually um, I'll say put it this way. He didn't really know what he believed when it came to the person of Jesus. And there were two sides pulling him. And it seemed like even though he, he believed he received a vision from God and legalized Christianity, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm misremembering, but the jury's still out on what Constantine, like his true motives were, right? So you have a guy who's, who ends up usurping the throne, legalizing Christianity and really pushes Christianity into a new era, but can you talk maybe what the, the significance of Constantine and, and that particular legalization meant? Yeah. yeah that's, that's a, <laughs> you might be more than an hour. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so Constantine the Great was is probably one of the most divisive figures in church history. Um, and oftentimes I'll talk about how there are certain game changers. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a basketball fan and, you know, I'm near Chicago. Michael Jordan's one of those guys, right? He, he changed basketball. Um, LeBron, I think, is probably going to go down the same way that, that you talk about before him and after him. Um, yeah. And, you know, historically, there, there are a number of folks who are that way. But in the history of the church, um, perhaps outside of some of the some people like Luther and the Apostle Paul, maybe St. Augustine, Constantine's in that discussion. Mm-hmm. And what makes him unique, and for the for the sake of you know history, we're not talking about Jesus here. <laughs> so sure. Jesus certainly changes the game. Um, but Constantine is unique because he's a he's a political um, person rather than a theologian. Um, so Constantine comes to power in the Roman Empire in the early 300s. Um, so in his day, the empire had split into four pieces um, that were joined together, um, but um, ruled separately. Um, so his dad, um, Constantius, uh, was the emperor of basically France uh, and um, part of the British Isles, um, at least the part that they had conquered by that point. <laughs> you, know, you can see some of the wonderful Hollywood masterpieces on Hadrian's Wall. Like, I think Channing Tatum made one of it. Um, I'm not recommending that one. <laughs> um, but eventually Constantine uh, discovers his dad has died and he goes out to kind of see to kind of the arrangements for his father and then takes over for his dad uh, as the emperor of uh, what the Romans called the Far West. Um, and he believes that he has a divine mandate um, to restore a, a single rule uh, from the Roman Empire. Yeah. And at least according to uh, a man named Caesarea, uh, who was our first church historian um, and one of the biographers of Constantine, uh, Constantine um, doesn't quite know um, which God has called him to this. Um, so, and that's where the debate starts. You know, did Constantine and his family, were they traditional Romans uh, who believed in lots of gods, were they more oppressed Romans who believed in just one God, um, probably the unconquered son, um, the sole Invictus, 
Um, and he'd come into contact with Christians. He knew who the Christians were. Um, he, For the most part, when he comes to power initially, there was uh, persecution going on. We call it the Great Persecution, um, inaugurated by Diocletian, Diocletian uh, yes. and, and carried on by Galerius. Um, so that's still active. Um, so uh, Constantine never really persecuted Christians um, at any kind of scale. May have put a few to death just to kind of save face. Uh, with the more senior Emperor Galerius. But he certainly knew Christians. Um, so as part of his manifest destiny then to uh, kind of go and, and take over the empire, uh, he heads on down to the city of Rome. Um, and yeah, it's a long trip. Um, and it starts to lose the element of surprise. Um, starts to lose soldiers. And he's, you know, fresh out of cash. He's running out of supplies. And he has to try to take the city of Rome. Um, which is a tall task. Um, Rome's got the walls, um, the soldiers there are arrested, and um, you know, all that the Roman emperor got in next has to do, or the emperor in Rome has to do, is just stay put, <laughs> pretty much to win. Right. Uh, so a tactical standpoint. Um, so Constantine's got no, no basis for winning this battle. But he believes again that some deity has called him uh, to this mission. And so he spends some time praying, and then he has this um, very well-known vision uh, where he sees um, the symbol uh, of Christ, of the, the cross uh, up in the heavens, uh, and he's told in hoc victo, um, by this sign he will conquer, um, and he'll later on have another vision uh, as well. Um, and so he ends up uh, placing Christian symbols on their sh on the soldiers' shields. They take up the standard of the cross as the standard of the army, and then they go to battle. Um, and it's very clear, those are very clear Christian symbols. Um, he puts the very famous Cairo, uh, which is the first two Greek letters of the name Christ, um, on the shields of his soldiers. And they storm the city, um, or at least they're on their way to storm the city. And Maxentius Emperor actually rides out and meets them. Uh, which, again, from a tactical standpoint, is about the dumbest <laughs> thing you can do. <laughs> so, um, I mean, you've got you've got the um, Tiber River that you got to cross. So you, you know, you got to bridges or choke points. You can't bring the whole kind of weight of your army to bear going across a bridge. And so Maxentius ends up, in one way or another, falling into a Tiber River and drowning. At least as best we can tell. Um, and that pretty much just ends the battle. Um, and for kind of really all purposes, Constantine takes the city of Rome without much fight. Um, and gets all the stuff that Maxentius has been storing <laughs> there. Um, and that's really kind of the point where most are going to identify the conversion of Constantine. Um, one of his first acts then, um, so that's in the year 312. Uh, in 313, then he signs, along with his brother-in-law Licinius, who ruled in the eastern half of the empire, um, the Edict of Milan, uh, which, for the first time, announces that Christianity is now a legal religion. Um, it's not the state religion yet. That's not until the 380s with Emperor Theodosius I. Um, but it's the it's the um, it's a legal religion, and it's the religion that the brand new, very very popular emperor is an adherent to. Um, and that creates a titanic shift uh, within Christianity. Um, that you go from being a persecuted minority to being the religion of the power. Yeah, 
and it, yeah. it happened pretty much that quick. It, it, there was not a transitionary period. There wasn't a, a trial phase or a cooling off phase or, hey, we'll, we'll all get our money back at the end uh, of this trial uh, if it doesn't work out. I mean, it is immediate. And, and for good, uh, we were able to throw, I mean, we had a lot of stuff going on. I mean, we internally, we were fighting because we didn't know that there were people bringing up charges of, was Jesus really God? I mean, or was he just a special human or was he even human at all? So we're dealing with, you know, the, the first generations who, whose ancestors never saw Christ. So now it's really being challenged saying, well, what are we going to be? So you have like this identity crisis but then they're being persecuted. So you kind of have to put that on the back burner. Your goal is to survive and preserve the texts, the sacred texts that are being turned over by apostates left and right. And then you're legalized and not, and now you, you're, you're not under the fear of persecution. So what does the church do? One, you can coalesce your resources, but immediately like those heresies, like they don't go away. They had to meet and, and have, like you mentioned the importance of the creeds earlier, we had to really establish who we were. And, and that was taking a look inward first, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, that's just through my reading of, of history. Yeah. yeah, it creates a host of, of difficulties. Um, so, um, you know, one of the questions with the end of persecution is, so what do we do with the people who, um, they call them the last? Um, sure. So those who would renounced the faith in one way or another, but now that we're legal again, um, want to come back. Um, what do we do with that? Um, a second question would be, um, so what are the entrance requirements that people were lining up at the church doors uh, to want to join? Um, and so is there any kind of, you see that being process? It used to take up to three years uh, of um, training uh, to be baptized in the church. Um, what do we do with that? Um, sure. Very question. Um, and Constantine starts all, all kinds of massive building projects and um, is always, almost always dependent. Um, and that creates um, an environment where uh, folks are oftentimes called like new money folks. So people who um, their family has just come to wealth um, and oftentimes their wealth is a little more dependent. Uh, on the um, goodwill uh, of the government. Um, so if you're kind of the old money kind of folks who had property and you were great, great times, 20 grandparents were all um, senators, you didn't have to worry about the winds of change with the emperor. They come and go, we're wealthy. Um, but the new folks, man, you need, you need the government contracts, um, all those sorts of things in order to keep the money that you're you've become quite used to. And so the last thing you want to do is, you know, not have any face time with the emperor. So you show up to church too. Um, and so it starts to raise the question of, it's not about what's coming in. Um, not only what we do with it, but how is it kind of changing um, the face of Christianity? And it also starts to change the way in which kind of dialogue takes place. So do we have to listen to the governors? Um, that, you know, a governor is not going to be terribly pleased if there's a bishop in his community that is telling them to do something that he doesn't want to do. Um, and it starts to become the question of well, who controls people and who ultimately leads the church. Um, and when you, when you start to when you kind of spell that out in history, especially when you get from the Middle Ages, that's a dynamic question um, that um, 
as the church kind of accrues more and more political power, um, what the church wanted to do was to, to really use the government to basically be an evangelistic tool. That's why you get eventually where you, know, you conquer a new people group, you force them to convert. Um, you start to get that sort of dynamic where the government is what's actually in charge of pushing Christianity forward. Um, and it becomes, you know, just broadly speaking, kind of an easy way out um, that, you know, everybody's Christian. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we, <laughs> Granted, they don't know who Christianity is, but hey, yeah. uh, we got that back. Um, and because they're now citizens of the century, they are Christians and they're Christians. And it creates the sense that our national identity and our religious identity are the same thing. Um, and I think kind of that gets going at the time of Constantine and it just continues to spiral because in part the bishops start to have a lot more authority uh, in their communities, they become recognized people uh, in their communities. Um, but to the same sense, and the government wants to control the church. I mean, if you think about it, uh, one of the one of the messages um, of most major religions um, is how do we attain to the afterlife? Um, what do we gotta do here in order to have a better there? Um, and you know, again, broadly speaking, Christianity is within that vein. Um, what do what do I have to do here? What, who do I have to be in order to assure that I go to heaven? Mm-hmm. And you know, when when you are talking about someone's soul and the well-being of their soul and of their entire existence, their their whole being, and the one who speaks to that has tremendous authority. Um, because pastors and bishops and religious leaders, they're not the care of the soul. Um, both in terms of, you know, spiritual disciplines, theology, all of those sorts of things. And if you think about it from kind of a, a governmental point of view, well, what better way to control people? Um, hmm. You know, perhaps sounding, you know, almost a little, you know, um, was it Stalin? called religion the opiate of the people. I can't remember now. Yeah. Um, I think it was him, but don't quote me on it. <laughs> um, but there's a tremendous amount of just kind of think broadly that, that religion has incredible control over people. Um, and if if you're an authoritarian government, man, that's a pretty good tool. Um, yes. And that's why we see so much kind of buying between the church and the state kind of historically of who's in charge? <laughs> um, who's got kind of the last say on stuff? Um, and really, with, with the advent of Constantine, that becomes a major controlling factor. At the same point, if you're a bishop, you probably got to be very careful about mouthing off about the sitting emperor because he's got a sword. Um, right. so he's got a lot of practice using it. And it creates kind of a, a tension, I think. Um, between the church and the state, even in the time of Constantine. Um, and probably one of the best examples of that is going to be uh, what we know as the Council of Nicaea. Um, so, uh, and Michael, you were kind of referencing it um, yes. vaguely beforehand. Yeah. Uh, you, you're, um, you're beating get, me to the punch, absolutely. I get the feeling you're wanting me to eventually get there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, 
when Constantine, um, when we last left him, had taken over Rome, um, but he wants the whole enchilada kind of thing, right? He wants to take over the entire empire, uh, and um, which means he's got to go fight his brother-in-law in the east at some point in time. Uh, and um, so that happens in 324. Um, he, he soundly beats his brother-in-law. Now, actually, he puts him in prison the next few him later. I'm probably made for some awkward family gatherings. But um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> when he arrives in the East, one of the one of the foremost questions on his mind. So, again, he's taken over half of an empire. Uh, who used to, you know, be a leader of someone else? Um, and they probably bad mouthing him over there for a while. Um, and now he's he's in charge of them. And the question is, how do I kind of unite everybody kind of back together again, right? And you know, how do I kind of, you know, win, win the hearts and minds of people here? Yeah, so he's looking for kind of tools to unify, and you can see that historically anytime kind of somebody conquers another territory. That's a big question. I don't, I don't want to conquer you and kind of um, have to keep my eye on you. I want you to, to feel like you're a part of this bigger empire, and then we move forward together. Mm -hmm. um, this is why Alexander the Great is doing Hellenism stuff. Um, I want you all to buy that. Hey, we're all Greeks together, even though you're not Greek. Right, the Romans did the same thing. I want you to buy, we're Romans together, and we were better Romans than you were still Roman. And Constantine's um, looking for how do I do that? How do I do that? Because you know, in the West they read the Nursing in Latin, in the East Greek, um, and so language couldn't be it. So what is it? And he's like, well, Christianity can really work well here. Um, Christianity was already in kind of all the cities. They had a whole communication network. They had a whole structure and hierarchy set up. They were used to talking to each other. It was a really nice kind of system if you're constantly you're looking at it and saying this could really help me to unite the whole empire together again. And then he's got the problem. Uh, in the East, the church is not united um, because of a dispute uh, that we know is the Arian dispute, um, named after a um, early fourth century president named Arius. Can you to remember who named after? Uh, <laughs> right. And he basically, just in a nutshell, just uh, said, you know, Jesus is a creature. He's not God. Um, so he's he's not us either. Um, he's better than humans. Uh, he's the pinnacle of creation. He's the first of all creation. Um, but for the Arians, we believe that he is a creature. He is not divine. Um, so they would even have they'd have slogans like if and I always think like, you know, you see a lot of kind of um, the different marches that we're seeing lately, a lot of kind of slogans being held up on signs. And they did the same thing. Sean is fascinating. They would stand on different street corners yelling at each other. Um, they're kind of catchphrases. Uh, and so the Aryan catchphrase was, there was a time when he was not. Uh, and the respondents, you know, there was not a time when he was not. <laughs> uh, you know, they always tell you don't do double negatives, but it, it works if you're yelling slogans, I guess. Um, and so... But this was a major just because it's, it's asking the question of who is Jesus. Is Jesus truly God or not? Yeah, and it touches all kinds of things. Um, primarily, it asks the question of, well, how, what's salvation? How are we saved? Um, and who do we pray to? Uh, I'm, um, gl I'm glad they, they touched upon the superficial questions of the day. So, <laughs> you, right. so you have what you see is there's a problem. He has a, like an information network, if you will. He has a method of doing it, but there's a, there's some fracturing there. So leveraging his control, he wants to again, coalesce things together for his own benefit using Christianity and to do it. 
and it helping us too. I mean, it wasn't like it wasn't helpful to get a firm answer on who Jesus was. So how, ex how exactly did Constantine play a role in orchestrating Nicaea? So I tend to be fairly sympathetic to Constantine. Um, I remember when I was, when I first met him, I hated him. I thought he was horrible, you know, and, and there are usually a couple schools of thought, like Constantine ruined Christianity. Um, and you see that a lot today, even, um, that um, you'll see movements in, in many kind of denominations. Let's go back to ancient Christianity before kind of the, the advent of what we call imperial Christianity, which is basically Constantine. Um, and so I, at first I was very negative towards it, like, man, you ruined the purity of the early church. And then, you know, as, as I looked at it more, I became a little more sympathetic. Um, and started to see, like, man, that the questions that he was dealing with are incredibly complex, and ones that we haven't solved today. Um, yeah. if, you know, just a, a cursory look at my own Facebook feed um, will tell me that, um, you know, the response to uh, President Trump. Um, throughout the last four years has been very different amongst Christian groups um, with especially thoughts on Christian nationalism. Um, in fact, um, I don't know if the date we recorded these, but um, the riot at the uh, Capitol just happened less than a week ago at the time of our recording. And after that, I've seen, boy, probably eight, ten articles on Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, again, it's, it's a question, um, what is the relationship between church and state that we still struggle with? Yes. Um, and Constantine at least gives us a window of somebody who I think doesn't necessarily see himself as using the church, but does see the church as a useful tool, but also sees himself as a faithful adherent to the church. And so when I look at his response to this Arian controversy, I see a couple of different aspects kind of simultaneously happening for Constantine. Um, and the first thing I would want to note is that he, he attempts to solve the conflict without a council first. Um, he writes a letter uh, to all the parties involved. Um, and um, basically, <laughs> the way I always think of it is uh, there's, I'm going to date myself here a little bit, uh, in the movie, I guess, Mars Attacks, um, oh, no. Jack Nicholson character um, comes on these little people, and we all just get along, or why can't we just all get along? I think Constantine kind of takes that tack a little bit in this letter. He's like, let's just agree to disagree, <laughs> um, and just let's all play nice. Um, and he doesn't seem to recognize, I think, like this is a actual serious dispute. I think he just thinks it's like, people are just weird. Um, fix it and let's move on. Um, I don't think he realizes it's such a major issue. I mean, when you're talking about, you know, who is Jesus? It's, it's, a, it's a fairly good question for the church to have to answer. Yes. Uh, who do you believe that Jesus is? Yeah. And I think once he kind of gets the, um, the responses, um, and one of the interesting aspects is that in that day, um, the bishops kind of didn't have a problem telling the emperor to mind his own business. Um, so my son has, a, has the phrase, M-Y-O-B, mind your own business, right? Uh, and they basically told him to, you know, kind of shove off. <laughs> um, 
you know, this we're going to fight this out, buddy. <laughs> and, and but Constantine, as the emperor, has a vested interest, right, in, in the unity of the people. Uh, and they were riding in the streets on these questions. Um, you know, today we tend to think like you know theology is maybe not such a big issue anymore, but for them it was huge. Um, it was it was definitive to who they are um, and how they understand themselves and the relationship with God. Like like they were for them, often it wasn't a more important question. Um, in fact, we have <laughs> as a funny side story, um, Gregor Nazianzus, who is a um, we call him one of the Cappadocian fathers. And he's the one who eventually kind of crafts a solution to this problem of, is Jesus fully God? Is he not? And if he is fully God, how do you talk about that? Um, we call it the Trinity. Um, he's the one who helps kind of craft the final solution to that. But he's, he talks about where he's like, man, I go down to the fish market. I want to buy a fish. And the fishmonger is asking and telling me, his viewpoint on the deity of Christ. And he's like, I just want a fish. But it, it tells us that, you know, people from all walks of life are engaged in this. Now, to the point where they feel so strongly about it, where they take to the streets. Uh, and so Constantine and most, most political leaders, you know, have a best interest in, you know, I ruin area being peaceful. <laughs> it's a right. point of people. Um, and so, you know, part of why I think Constantine, you know, acts on it is, you know, I want clarity to be clear. But at the same time, I think um, we don't always give Constantine enough credit that he also recognizes that this is a real problem in the church and it needs to be solved. And that the only way to solve it is really to kind of get everybody in the same room you know, and have them talk about it. Um, so this is why I think both of those aspects, he's got, you know, kind of political concerns, but also um, I think he at least sees himself and he wants to be a faithful member of the church. Hmm. Um, and he wants to kind of facilitate a way in which the church comes together. Now, at the Council of Nicaea, it's highly, highly disputed um, what exactly Constantine's role was. Um, so he certainly calls the council and puts the bill for it, which, you know, it's kind of nice, you know, Absolutely. every once in a while I travel and, and the university pays for it. And I'm like, woo, you know, <laughs> not just McDonald's for me. Right. <laughs> um, so but they all arrive there. Um, and then we get different accounts of kind of what actually happens and what Constantine's role is, um, where some believe that Constantine was overtly in charge of the council. Um, that Constantine actually floats the the theological term that the council uses is uh, a Greek term homoousios, which just simply means of one substance. Uh, so it says that Jesus is the same substance as the Father. Um, so the idea that he's truly God, um, I always put it: uh, whatever it is to be God, Jesus is in. Um, has it a hundred percent. And so something that Constantine may have made that recommendation. Others think that his advisor, a guy named Hosius of Cordoba, kind of, you know, like whispered in his ear, like, hey, why don't you try this one? And see if you can buy it. Um, others think that Constantine was just kind of there. Um, but that the bishops themselves were the ones who kind of ran the council. Uh, so it's, at that point, it's really kind of difficult to know historically what actually happened. Um, and then um, after that, Constantine does take a little bit more of an active hand. 
uh, when it comes to leadership in the church. Um, he'll start to view himself as kind of a bishop of bishops, view his role as emperor as by God. Um, and, you know, kind of start to take a little bit more active role in who's the bishop and what the decisions are. Um, eventually starts to see himself as being kind of the culmination of the apostolic tradition. Um, so yes. sees himself as kind of the final apostle, which is kind of, you know, a dangerous ground to be on. Yeah, no <laughs> yeah. kidding. So, um, but I, I always think it's hard to know how much of it he does because he believes it and how much of it is kind of for show. Yeah. Um, and and, that's, and that, that will always probably always be disputed. One day we'll, we'll find out. Uh, it's funny sitting here. I, I am. I, I need to be taking notes. The, the good news is I have all this recorded, so I can go back and listen to it at any point. I, I this puts me right back into my sophomore year in the lecture halls at Olivet. Like this, this type of, of thing. And I, if people, the people who are listening, I, I bet they can't help but look at. And, and you talk, touched on it a little bit, but see the modern parallels. The the you know the the tension that we hold here in America. This this idea, this Jefferson idea of separation of church and state and this equal tension. You know, I, when I look back over the church and I look at somebody like Constantine, he started out as a mediator. And then like you had just mentioned after Nicaea starts to kind of cross into that territory a little bit. And it, it's a story I'm going to have to have you back on for uh, with Ambrose and Theodosius, because that was my favorite story you ever told in, in that lesson. Uh, and we don't have nearly enough time for that. That takes a whole podcast in and of itself. But when I look at like our country here, and usually at this point in, in time, after 200 and some odd years, usually the church either has been persecuted in, into almost oblivion, or it has become so in line lined with the government it is a like a, this idea of christian nationalism where maybe its true form has been perverted and so much politicized that you can't separate the nation and the religion any longer and at least in america even though there's 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 a marriage there uh, obviously of certain groups we are still in that tension we haven't we haven't been overruled and we also don't have like uh, the Protestant version of a Pope sitting in the white house, you know? And so it's interesting when our nation is like, we are not, we're not really following the trend of most nations at this point, but you're starting to see that fracture, uh, which I think we can learn from church history. And I guess the question I have for you is, do you, do you see those modern parallels today? And what would be your warning? What would, what would be your encouragement to Christians today? Like, Hey, go and learn from our history. Like, what would you encourage them to do, to study? One of the things that I think history bears out is um, that the church universal has to be, and local, has to be very cautious hmm. about what does the interaction with the state look like. Um, and I think one of the things that history shows to me is many times the church has tried to kind of take that shortcut that we talked about earlier. Um, to kind of let the government do the work for them. Um, and one of the things that I think is borne out is that that comes at price. Um, that ultimately, the concerns of the government and the concerns of the church are diverse. Um, 
there are certainly lots of similar concerns, but the ultimate concern is, I think, very different between the two. And that ultimately, I think what ends up happening is that the government wins. Um, not like in an eschatological sense or anything like that, but that in that historical sense, the government will always find a way because of the, the realms that it controls and the fact that we live in kind of the, the physical realm, that the government always finds a way um, to kind of come out on top. Um, and that as the church kind of feeds its mission to the government, then ultimately what happens is that the church becomes a tool and then becomes used and then becomes used by the government. Hmm. Um, and we see it time and again um, in the church. Um, and one of the things where you know, there's that phrase, you know, those who do it, don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Yeah. One of those things that I find is a very kind of cautious and sobering thought. Um, that in what ways has the modern church wanted to basically just that something like an institutional or even as you the national Christianity or national religion kind of do the work for them. Um, mm. And I think we see that in kind of all the different walks um, where um, many who have grown up in the church leave. You know, because it's been nothing more than just kind of a, a national identity. I'm born in America, so it's right. back to I'm a Christian. Um, and um, it creates what we call Christendom, where it's just kind of, and this goes all the way back to Constantine with Imperial Christianity that says kind of loyalty to the state is equal or the same thing as loyalty to the church. Um, and that that creates the environment uh, where uh, the political leader um, is uniquely appointed by God. Um, so oftentimes they would use messianic terms to talk about Constantine. He is an instrument of God. He's chosen by God um, to lead us into kind of a great new world. Um, and what usually happens is that then don't question Constantine. Yeah. Uh, whatever he does has to be by virtue of the fact that we've kind of made him into a, a savior type of figure has to be correct. And so oftentimes that ends up with his biography Eusebius kind of glossing over some of the atrocities that Constantine commit. Um, and I think in our in our own world that it, we find similar responses to our various political leaders, that um, if you are, you know, a committed uh, conservative, then it was it's very difficult to admit that Trump made mistakes. If you were a committed um, Democrat, it would have been very difficult to admit that President Obama had made mistakes. Mm -hmm. And it, it kind of, you know, goes both ways. Sure. Um, and... And a lot of that is because there starts to become this equation that the political leader becomes kind of this savior figure. Uh, and that's really a, an outgrowth of kind of that nationalism or Christianity, or even uh, some argue that imperial theology, the idea that the emperor is the 
as God ordains will be the church into better times. Sure. Um, and, that's and, kind and of where Genesis yeah, is. Well, that well, that makes complete sense. And and you're not and you're not dismissing the the possibility God, that God can use anyone at any time to do anything. Uh, however, it, I think it, this is a broader topic about who are we as Christians worshiping? Uh, who are we uplifting? Or who are we holding mm -hmm. accountable? Like if, for example, someone claims to be Christian, well, then I think our Holy Scripture, our text talks about what we were supposed to do to them as as fellow brothers and what and what type of behavior, what type of fruit we are supposed to see from their lives. But also, if they are to fail, if they are to, you know, be like every other person on the face of the planet and God forbid sin, you know, does that affect my spiritual life? Does that affect the overall mission of the church? And it seems as if, as of late, the despondency I'm seeing in, in the church today is very much tied to other people's faith or acclaimed faith. It has nothing to do with what God is doing in me. It has nothing to do with this overall mission of the church. It's somehow I'm going to, you know, abdicate my faith and, and, basically projected on somebody else when they fail it's failing me because of this like you said this christendom and and i that is like one of the biggest parallels i see like you you the phrase of this podcast is uh not letting the state do the work like that is such a oh my goodness like i don't know why you didn't say that in college maybe you did i wasn't paying attention but that that is a great great way of putting it yeah thank you yeah and that's been you know if you look back at, like, say, the thought of Soren Kierkegaard in um, the 19th, 19th century, yeah, I think 19th century um, Danish philosopher, that's one of his big kind of thinking points. He's like, you know, Christendom is actually the idea of Christianity. Um, that it, it's not about just living a good life, it's not just about following the rules of the country I live in. Um, and for Kierkegaard, it, his thought was it has to, you know, be messy. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things that I, I think that history teaches us, and, and I think he wanted me to at some point kind of touch on, you know, kind of what does history kind of teach us? Yeah. Um, that, you know, errors, errors are a part of our history. That nobody um, is ever going to be perfect in this life. Yes. Um, Jesus kind of has a corner on the market. Uh, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> no, right. Um, there's a phrase on the off, I pull that nervous. Um, right? Like, like exactly. we are going to screw this up, we're going to. And one of the things that, that I find fascinating is there's oftentimes a reluctance to accept that, there's a, there's a desire yeah. to explain it away. Um, and to a certain extent, I think that that they, the actions that the church individuals have taken has to be contextualized, has to be understood within their culture, uh, within the expectations of their world, all those things. It doesn't mean that we approve of what they've done, but it has to be rightly understood. Um, and oftentimes, I think there's this precious judgment on historical figures for an accurate understanding of what they thought, what they did, why they did it, 
what were the constraints that they were working under. Um, there's oftentimes a rush to judgment about any of those things. But I, I think there's oftentimes a, a reluctance to admit that errors have happened, that people have done stupid things. And, and so you know, there's the idea that we oftentimes have to erase those people and not admit the fact that, that there's ever anything good about them. Or we have to defend it and say, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And I think history tells us like there's there's this middle ground that says, you know what? We can own the fact that people in our tradition have made horrible mistakes. But I can also own the fact that one, I don't have to do that. And two, I can own the idea that I have to rightly understand why they did what they did. Why they believed what they believed. And I think that that's kind of the tension that we live in. Um, so, yeah, and, and that I think it, it reinforces the idea that there's nobody who's purely evil. This is there's nobody who's purely good, you know, save Jesus. Um, that, um, but that we can learn. From them without having to necessarily say, we're going to do it that way. Um, and I think that's one of the, the greatest advantages of learning about our history. So why do they do what they did? Do I want to do it the same way? Do I want to do something completely different? But before we abandon the tradition, say, at least let me know that I understand it. Yeah. Or before yeah. I follow it, let me at least make sure that I know what it's saying. Uh, and, and again, that creates tension um, within the church. Uh, you'll have the tradition that's like, we've got to do this way, we've always done it. And the right, right, story and all this right. is that, well, you know, we, we started doing that in 1947. Before that, nobody did that. <laughs> right? Or, or whatever. Um, and then there's also the ones that want to say, anything that's ever been done, we got to do completely differently. And we want to go, friends want to say, well, let's go back and see why we're doing it like and if we want to change it, then let's make sure that we're responsible in the way that we change it. Um, this yeah. is this is such a, a fundamental point of it's not erasing history, and it's not it's not uplifting it to a pedestal, and and I, it comes back to this idea that yes, our, our th- maybe theological our, our our heroes of old, there is a tendency to to forget the worst parts and remember the good and vice versa, depending on how history likes to view a particular person. Uh, and that doesn't, there, there's that abandonment of the middle ground, which I think is, which I think is so hypocritical because if we're to look back over our own lives to make it personal, we would see the middle ground, uh, especially if you're a Christian and, and you're living every day in whole and trying to pursue holiness. That's not like every day it's a constant struggle to, to against your sin nature. There, there is a, there's a reminder there that there's a reason why I'm going to die in the first place. The sin has been, sin has entered the world and our prognosis of that is death. Obviously Jesus steps in from a theological perspective. I'm going to remain Orthodox for this podcast. Uh, and, and we, we, we see this, if we look in the mirror and, and we, we try to hold ourselves to the same standard, there's going to be a lot of middle ground in our own lives. You know, what, at what point in the past was I, was I perfect? And, or was there a time when, when I was in rebellion and I was experiencing a lot of shame 
but Christ brought me out of that. So my, my past is no longer something that rules me. It's not all of the bad things that I see. I look at the grace of God when I look back uh, on my past mistakes and, and where I am today. And I, I just don't understand why we, why we hold there. We don't hold ourselves either to the same standard or we, or we completely ignore it uh, in our own lives. And, and that's something that I think for today, you know, if people are really trying to cope with these failings of church leaders or these contemplations of, of the men and women who've gone before us. And then we've discovered they're, they're they haven't, they weren't perfect. I always wonder if we could start looking at our own lives first and say, would we pass that historical test? Does, does that, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, by, you know, their worst decisions, um, that doesn't define who you are. Does it? It's in the same way your best decisions don't define who you are. It's just all of them together. Yeah. And one of the issues that I always have is that um, when we go back and only look at the ridiculous things that people have done, the stupid things, the horrible things that people have done, and we, we define them by that. Um, yeah. And you know, we wouldn't want anybody to define us that way. You know, but it also doesn't allow for any kind of sense of growth. Yes. Um, that, you know, if I look back and, you know, had talked to 20-year-old Mark, man, he was <laughs> You know, that the things that he thought were true, um, you know, open your eyes, dude. Um, and, and some of the choices that he made, like, I, I would want to go back and just hit him upside the head, like, what am I thinking? Um, but at the same time, Vain that in part is what made me who I am today. Sure. Um, and that, you know, there's there's perhaps a great danger without of not allowing growth to take place. Hmm. Um, so you know, you look back and we have an age where you know kind of the backward looking scope is very limited. Um and very damning. Um whereas one thing that doesn't kind of measure up to what we think is the right thing and you know win somebody. Um so that we'll go back and yeah every once in a while you find, you know, you know, this is what somebody tweeted 20 years ago or this was a post to put up on Facebook um as a high schooler. Um like no four year old should be judged for what they said in high school because right. they're when their brain is still developing. You no, know, if they were still saying the same stuff, yeah, okay. But if, if they're a person, we, we have to start to see some of that. And I think historically, like, look at historical figures we have to do that as well. Yeah, they're growing, they're developing times. Some of the things, like, like Andrew, I love him, but man, he did some horrible things. Like, there were some decisions where I'm like, what, what were you thinking when he decided to do that? And I can see what he was thinking. I'm like, well, I just don't think he thought it through very well. Um, right. <laughs> that, but um, at the same thing, you know, I look at the other things that he did, and as he learned uh, from what he did. Um, and again, some people don't, you know, they don't change. And I think they're, you know, kind of, you know, history judges, you know, that, you know, you kept making the same mistakes. You're still the same racist today as you were, You're right. you know, when, when you when you hadn't been introduced or exposed to these issues, to these understandings, that you, you didn't change and grow as you came to better understand. Like, there, yeah, you know, 
you know, then you start to see the measure of the person. But the measure of the person, I think, always has to be, you know, how do we see them grow and change? And you know, when they see it, like, oh, I, you know, when I did that to that person, that was, that was wrong. Um, and they go back and they apologize and they make restitution, restoration safely. I think that's, you know, sometimes this needs to be lacking a little yeah. bit in kind of, I think, in a social media driven world. Um, and, you know, one of the advantages I think that this social media has is that, you know, we can't go back for the most part and dredge up stuff that they were. Um, sure. <laughs> we've probably got an asset. <laughs> yeah, we, we do. We have to hold ourselves. I mean, we, we have to do a lot more deleting if we were going to try to cover our, our basis a little bit more. Uh, it, it, I guess and, and we, I don't think we let folks necessarily off the hook, you know, but no. that it's, it's not that. And, and you know, some things are, are often more damning than others. Yeah, but that. The idea, I think, is that, that growth has to be made possible, mm-hmm. um, and that the environment has to be conducive to that. Um, and I think that's a very Christian message. Um, that every Westerly message <laughs> that that it should we should always remember that, that the person I am today is not the person that I should be ten years from. That I need to be looking at my presuppositions. That I need to look at the language that I use, um, and be um, attentive, um, and constantly kind of examining myself as a teacher. That's, that's one of my goals: is to say, okay, how am I a better scholar today? Uh, than I was five years ago, ten years ago. Oh, sure. How am I a better teacher today uh, than I was? Um, and what are the pieces of me that needs to be changed? Um, so, and, and sometimes that's the language that I use. Uh, you know, one of the one of the things that I was where I was brought up was. You know, we use guys for everything. You know, any group of people was a guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and language would change. Um, that, you know, guys is a masculine-oriented term that can be very exclusive of women. Mm-hmm. Um, and, man, 30 years I used that term as, you know, as an all-inclusive term. Everybody kind of, you know, got it. But now it's, the language is just it's a challenge um, to say, you know, I, I have to say the way that I used to do things needs to be different mm-hmm. um, because of the environment that I'm in. Now, what I wouldn't want is to go back and find a 30-year-old transcript where, you know, if guys listen to that and say, you know, you know he was using gender-exclusive terms and, and that kind of thing. What I wanted to say is, okay, so he... He, he learned that, you know, most now don't see a bad word that way. And he's excising it from his vocabulary. And, and I think that's one of the things that oftentimes history, even historians miss a little bit, that we don't necessarily 
see how does kind of the thought of somebody change as time mm. goes. Yeah. That yeah. we want to treat oftentimes historical figures as monolithic entities. And none of us would want to be treated that way. No, absolutely not. Um, so, um, yeah. Uh, well, That's I, one of the things that I think history can help us with um, to, to get that realization that, that modernity can help or the current context can help us as we think about how do we study history. I, uh, this, I mean, this is truly, like, I think some of the things that, that needs to be uh, taught in Sunday school, it needs to be taught to, to people more so because of that perspective. I mean, Christianity has the most rich history on the planet. Um, and it's a shame that it's not taught more. So for, for me, I'm doing my best to try to try to teach this and throw it into sermons without making people fall asleep. I don't have the gift that you do. Uh, but if, if, if I, I were to recommend some things to my congregation and the people listening, if, if they want to just start, if they don't even know, let, let's say we're starting out with an elementary understanding of church history, where, where should the average churchgoer like start when it comes to trying to understand maybe the present context by, by first studying the past? Like what, what type of books, what era would you go to? I mean, this is assuming they've, they've read their Bible. So I guess I'm, I'm saying out of, outside of the, the Bible and maybe commentaries on scripture, where, where, what type of figures, eras, and, and material would you encourage people to, to look at? Um, I think there, there are a couple of kind of formative eras that I would recommend they look at. Um, what I would recommend just, just a, we call them a survey textbook, um, a survey book on the, on the history of Christianity. So get kind of the breadth uh, of the history of Christianity. Um, usually, Huso Gonzalez says the story of Christianity is seen as a fairly good introduction to the topic um, and told in a little bit more of a narrative format that doesn't kind of get lost in theological weeds. Um, so that's, that's one place to kind of start us with a good just kind of survey uh, of the church. Um, in terms of people to look at, um, if you really want to understand the theology of Western Christianity, I think you have to start with Augustine. There are others that you could start with earlier than Augustine, but Augustine is one of those other kind of towering figures that right. does not the same after him. Um, so he's one that kind of, I, I kind of always somewhat half-heartedly say, like everybody after Augustine has to deal with the guy. Um, you can't really do theology in the West without having to do it one way or another deal with him. Um, his Confessions is perhaps the most accessible uh, of his works with a good bit of theology tucked into it. It's the very famous story of his life, um, or at least his first couple, first three or four decades. Um, the Reformation period is another very good one to look at if, if you're a Protestant. Um, sure, yes. <laughs> so, even, even, if you're, even if you're Roman Catholic, the Reformation period is, is good to look at to, to understand kind of what a Protestant is thinking, why they established their own tradition apart from Roman Catholicism. But also, modern Roman Catholicism has started to grapple at a much more significant level with the critiques 
that the Protestants were engaged with. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where I remember we had, I had a friend, uh, a Catholic priest, he was telling us about how they were listening to Mighty Fortress of Our God in the church that day. Um, you know, that's a very famous Lutheran hymn. Um, and um, so I think kind of the, the Reformation era uh, is a good one to know more about if you just simply want to understand what is it to be Protestant. Um, if you're from a Wesleyan background, a, a survey of the life of Wesley is pretty useful as well. Absolutely. The thought of Wesley, um, Ken Collins' book, The Scripture of Salvation, is a good one to start with. Um, I guess Mark Maddox has a, has a number of books on Wesley as well that are you know, usually pretty good. Um, and Wesley is at a, know, a pivotal time in the history of the church where kind of the church is grappling with the enlightenment and kind of the, the transformation of human understanding away from kind of reliance upon revelation, and God told us this, um, to reason. We thought this up ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. So, or it, it makes sense to us kind of thing, and how do we, in the minds all that, how do we make sense of stuff, and let's just do that. Um, so that's a fairly impactful time. Um, and Wesley is kind of riding the cusp of that a little bit, if you will. Um, so those are some eras to kind of okay. look at. Um, in terms of kind of understanding the modern church, um, certainly the thought of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and uh, also Gustavo Gutierrez, uh, who's the founder of liberation theology, mm-hmm. uh, would be something good to look at. And so particularly if you're looking at um, understanding uh, the current Pope, Francis I, um, or if you're interested all in um, Folks like Oscar Romero, I see a lot of impact from liberation theology's theme uh, in the Black Lives Matters movement. Um, a lot based on the thought of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, so I think that that understanding him would be very useful for wanting to understand kind of the current context of American Christianity, um, as well as a work on uh, evangelicalism. So there are a number of yes, that's a fascinating that's a, works on the evangelical movement. Uh, Mark Knoll used to be kind of the one of the leading figures. I don't know what he is anymore. He's he's retired, I think, from uh, Notre Dame. Um, but evangelicalism itself, I think, is shifting a lot within the last decade. Um, yes. So um, off the top of my head, I can't think of anybody who's who's writing a scholarly approach to that. Okay. okay. Yeah, See, I, would, I would definitely recommend some of those books. Oh, excellent. Because I don't know if it's for me, it's like if it's written in the last decade, I don't want to read it until the next decade. Uh, but I, I'm always defaulting to going back. I, I know some of the things that you recommended to me, along with some other professors from Olivet, uh, which I've been going back to, uh, is anything uh, from from like Jurgen Moltmann, Liberation Theology to Crucified God. That is probably the most dense work. I mean, he rivals Augustine in some of his like really dense work so if you really want to challenge i would recommend that and then it was finally a book that you 
uh, encouraged me to pick up after a long period of time. I finally bought it was uh, William Bennett's story of Christianity's first thousand years. It's tried by tried by fire story of Christianity's first thousand years. That that book is amazing at at, at giving just an overall approach to just the early church and how we survived and how we got to where we're at and setting the stage. It's just really long. It's actually, it's, it looks really impressive on a bookshelf and you actually can use it as a personal defense weapon. So it it serves multiple needs. One other one to look at would probably be um, Bonhoeffer. Oh yes. Okay. The Um, cost of discipleship. Specifically cost of discipleship. His idea of costly grace you know, versus is, cheap I, grace, right? Cheap grace. And is, I think, even if folks today aren't necessarily referencing Bonhoeffer as much as they used to, um, which is hard to know kind of from decade to decade, but a lot of his ideas on religionless Christianity um, uh, drives, I think, uh, What's happening in a lot of the wings of Christianity, right? mm-hmm. uh, and but kind of all the different approaches to Christianity are trying to grapple with. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, well, thank you, uh, thank you very much for for all those recommendations, uh, and uh, thank you uh, for for being able to set aside time. I mean, we set aside time for an hour, and and you've given me an hour and a half. I mean, I feel so privileged, and and I hope this is not the only time because I there is so much more to to talk about. And so I'm going to have to reserve some time with you later this year, because I, I want to revisit some of these, these themes, as well as some other figures in the church that I think people will just get a kick out of. So uh, Dr. Frisius, you continue to impact my life uh, many years thereafter. And I, I promise you, even though I will still mix up some of the dates uh, as I, as I failed on those tests multiple times, I, my love, my love for the history, God used you particular, particularly to impact me and he continues to do so so thank you for our friendship and thank you for your time thanks michael appreciate it thank you for listening this week and thank you so very much to dr frisius for his time and his commitment to the academic world if you enjoyed what you just heard please leave us a review anywhere that you listen to podcasts simply search we shall not sleep if you ever have feedback suggestions or would like to ask us a question You can email the show at wsnspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, and may God bless you and keep you.